You are listening to a sermon from In-Town Presbyterian Church in Portland, Oregon. If you'd like to listen to other sermons or find out more about the ministries and work of In-Town, please visit InTownChurch.com. If you've been here at In-Town regularly at all this summer, then you've probably heard me talk a little bit about this parable already uh, in connection with uh, how the Christian community is supposed to be a community of forgiveness towards one another. Um, and that is definitely a main, main aspect of this parable, as you can probably already uh, tell pretty obviously. But this morning, I'd like to look at this parable as if it were a theatrical production composed of three scenes. So scene one is going to give us some background information and kind of set us up for what's going to happen. It's going to introduce us to two main characters, the king and the servant. And almost immediately in scene one, we're going to get plunged into conflict that just is over the top. And just as quickly, we're going to get pulled right back out into resolution. The curtain's going to come down, and then in scene two, we're going to get introduced into a third character, and we're going to actually get catapulted right out of resolution back into conflict. And then the curtain's going to come down again. And in scene three, we're going to get back to resolution. But the story's going to resolve in such a way that it's going to cause us to rethink everything we saw in scene one. It's sort of like M. Night Shyamalan's Sixth Sense. Okay? If you haven't seen this by now, then you know, I don't even care. Spoiler alert, yeah, it's too late. You should have seen it by now. Think back to when M. Night Shyamalan was writing good movies. Sorry, was that over the top? Okay, Sixth Sense, right? You're watching the whole movie, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, Bruce Willis is a little boring, he's a little dry, and then you get right to the end. Oh, he wasn't just boring, he was dead. The whole time, right? And then they kind of have some scenes, and you want to go back and watch it again and see, did he really move the furniture? Because dead people can't move furniture, right? You want to watch it again and kind of relearn the story now that you know something new. That's what we're going to do with this parable. We're going to have to go back, just like the sixth sense, and understand the story from a radically new perspective. So let's jump in. Scene one. As the story begins, we're told of a king. And the only thing we know about him is that his goal is to settle accounts with his servants. Back in those days, the kings would lend money to other people in their court. And eventually, if the king hadn't, you know, didn't have enough money to live or he just needed to get some money back, he would call those debts due. And he calls before him a servant who owes him an astronomical amount of money. And different modern translations try to capture this in different ways. Some say millions of dollars or billions or even trillions of dollars. Uh, 10,000 talents doesn't really mean much uh, in our culture, but the basic gist of it is this. If, if this servant were a day laborer, if he was making minimum wage, and he could have his entire paycheck garnished and live off nothing, it would take him 200,000 years to pay back this debt. It's unpayable. That's what Jesus is trying to get across. It's unpayable. And so obviously, the servant is unable to pay. I love it when the Bible puts those little, those little clues in there. The guy owed him an unpayable amount of money. The servant was unable to pay, just in case we missed it, right? He's unable to pay it. And so the servant starts pleading with the king to be patient with him. And in this act of extreme mercy, the king forgives him the entire debt. I mean, the story starts off with just this incredible amount of conflict. And immediately, it's over. And it's almost as if the curtain comes down and the lights dim just a little bit more. And you can hear the crowd in the theater gasping and talking about what just happened. How can the conflict already be over and it's totally resolved? But as the curtain lifts for scene two, 
we probably hear some low strings, some haunting music, and we have a foreboding feeling in our stomachs. The story is shifting to become a sort of dark, tragic comedy. The servant, who's just been forgiven this unpayable debt, walks out of the king's court, and he bumps into a fellow servant. This fellow servant owes him what in modern times is maybe, maybe a few thousand dollars. If this other guy was making minimum wage, it would take him a couple months to pay back servant number one. And we're expecting to see this smile on the first servant's face as he greets the second servant, but it doesn't happen. Instead, in this, it's almost like this perverse comedy. He walks up to the guy, wraps his hands around his neck, and starts wringing his neck, saying, pay me my money, pay me my money. Not at all what we had expected. And this is like an over-the-top replay of the first scene. We have a guy in a position of power, a guy in a position of debt. The guy calls the loan due. The debtor falls on his knees and pleads for patience. Only this time, the guy in the position of power doesn't forgive. He acts with cold-hearted justice and has the man sent to debtor's prison. And the curtain comes down on scene two. At this point, the audience is no longer gasping, no longer chattering. We're all just sitting silently. We can barely believe what we just saw. As the curtain rises, we see a chorus of servants chattering amongst themselves, talking excitedly, and we finally kind of get to hear what they're saying, and they're talking about what just happened. They had no doubt heard of the king's generosity to the first servant. They knew how much he had been forgiven, and then they witnessed him act in cold justice without mercy or care for his fellow servant. So they go and they report to the king everything that they saw had happened. The king recalls the first servant and reprimands him for not showing mercy to his fellow servant after he himself had been shown mercy. And in anger, the king delivers this first servant over to the jailers and torturers until his debt should be paid. That's code for life sentence. And then it's almost as if the curtain comes down and the lights are still off and we get this spotlight up on the stage. And Jesus, the playwright, the storyteller, comes out. And in case we didn't get the point of his story, he looks all of us right in the eye and he says, this is exactly what my father will do to you if you don't forgive your brother from his heart. The spotlight goes off. The play is over. The lights come up. And we all start to leave the theater. And as we're walking out, we know that Jesus wanted us to learn something. That's pretty obvious. When the playwright actually comes out and tells you the point of his play, that's called preachy, right? We don't like that. Okay? So we know that he wants us to learn something. And we start to discuss what we just saw. And all of us can agree on, on kind of the main points of interpretation. Right? Jesus was writing this story. And it represents things. The king represents God, the servants represent us, the debt represents our sin, and that's where our conversation starts to get really vague, right? We just, you know, yeah, our sin, and we don't really want to get into specifics, our own personal failings, we just want to kind of hold back at that point of the conversation. And as we're talking about what we just saw, we think back to why was Jesus telling us this story in the first place? Because the story is a response to Peter's question. Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? 
But the important thing to note here is that Peter's question is a follow-up question. It doesn't just come out of thin air. Jesus had just finished a discussion on what theologians call church discipline. And he tells his disciples, if one of your brothers sins against you, you need to go to him, talk to him yourself, and see if he'll turn away from his sin and come back. If he refuses, you should take some of the church leaders with you, go and talk to him, tell him his sin. If he'll understand, repent, say he's sorry, bring him back. If he refuses, tell it to the whole church. Let the whole church know what he's done. And ask him, plead with him to come back. And if he doesn't, Jesus says to treat him like a Gentile or a tax collector. And at this point, some of the disciples are thinking, yeah, that's right. We would never talk to those people. But is that really what Jesus meant? Think about who's writing down this story in the Gospel of Matthew. It's Matthew, right? A disciple called by Jesus. What was he doing when Jesus called him? He was a tax collector. Can you imagine the smile on his face as he's writing this down for us? Understanding the irony? Think about the people that Jesus hung out with the most in his ministry, and they were the outcasts. Gentiles and tax collectors. And what Jesus is telling his disciples is that if someone fails to repent, treat them like a lost sheep and pursue them and pursue them and pursue them. Right before that, he told them another story about a shepherd who had 100 sheep, one went missing, and he left the 99. That's what he's calling his disciples to do. So Peter's thinking about all this, and this is where his follow-up question comes from, because he's thinking, okay, so you've addressed situation A. The guy sins, we go to him, he doesn't repent, we keep going, doesn't repent, keep going, doesn't repent. What about situation B? Situation B is where my brother sins against me, I go to him, I tell him, and he's like, oh, man, you know what, I'm sorry. You're right, I was wrong, I should not have done that. I apologize, I want to make this right. And Peter's thinking, you know what, I've known some people that say that, and then a week later, they do the same thing. Or they do something different. And so his question is, what about the guy who keeps saying he's sorry? He keeps saying he's going to turn from his sin. What am I supposed to do then? And Peter is is a really magnanimous guy, okay? We all know the three strikes and you're out rule, right? Well, he doubles it seven times. You know, know, Lord, I've been thinking, three, not really that great. What about seven? Should I forgive him seven times? And Jesus' response to Peter, that 77 times... And really, this whole story is Jesus saying back to Peter, how about infinity times? How's that sound? So we're standing outside the theater, and and we're talking about all of this, and we kind of break down into a couple different groups. Some of us immediately assume that we need to do something. Something about us needs to change. And we're thinking about the story, we're thinking about the play that Jesus just showed us, And that phrase that he told us at the end, and we go, aha, I've got it. I need to be more forgiving. I've got to be a more forgiving person. I'm not good enough at forgiving. When people hurt me, I get angry, I get bitter. I need to be way more forgiving than I am. And if we're super thoughtful, we might even stop at Barnes & Noble on the way home and pick up a book. Forgiveness for Dummies, 10 Steps to Become a More Forgiving Person, something like that. And in this group of people, we're walking away from the theater vowing to be better people. We're making promises that we will change. 
But a second group of us leave the theater, and we're a little more quick-witted. We were a little more critical as we were watching this play unfold. And so we have, we have some questions. We can't really put it all together, and so we finally come up with it. We say, aha, this was a trick story. Think about it. At the beginning, the servant's forgiven, right? The debt, it's gone. It's over. But then at the end, he's thrown into jail for the very same debt that he was forgiven for. That can't make sense. We know for a fact that God's the king and we're the servants. And we also know that God can't forgive and then unforgive, right? That's called Indian giving. God can't do that. We can even find elsewhere in the Bible that he works out our salvation unto completion if we're Christians. We're told that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of ultimate salvation. And and some of the people in this group have no doubt been in church for a while, so we've got a lot of phrases for this, right? Eternal security, once saved, always saved, perseverance of the saints. Jesus had almost painted us into a theological corner, but we saw the way out. Jesus is using hyperbole. So we're thinking to ourselves, okay, if I'm a Christian and I've been forgiven, I need to be a more forgiving person, yes. And if I'm not, there will be consequences, but come on, I'm not going to lose my salvation or something, right? That's just, he's just trying trying to scare us into being a little bit better. And I think it's safe to say that most of us fit into one of these two groups. And both groups have a partial truth that they want to emphasize. On the one hand, the Bible is very clear. You can't lose your salvation. God does complete that work that he starts in people. The Holy Spirit is a seal for final redemption for God's people. That is true. On the other hand, we're also told that Christianity entails life change. We're told that Christians have been saved unto good works, that we should walk in them. We're told that if you're a Christian, then you should show forth the fruit of the Spirit in your life. We know that that's true. And yet the problem with both of these reactions to this story, whether we focus on what we must do as a response to Christ's teaching, or if we attempt to dispel an apparent paradox in his teaching so as to maintain orthodoxy, the problem is the same. And it's the problem of self-justification. And this is the strangest part to me as I continue to study this story. And as I thought about us as a church kind of going to this theater and watching this play and then leaving and what our reaction would be like, the strange part is that for most of us, even though we've heard a story of this over-the-top, enormous debt that's forgiven, and then an unbelievably harsh reaction, we end up having the same exact reaction as that first servant. I'm not saying that we're going to run out of here and punch somebody in the face because they owe us $5. At least I hope not. But so many of us are so busy justifying ourselves that just like the unforgiving servant, we have failed to hear what the king has said to us. In scene one, the servant was unforgiving. Scene two, excuse me. But the servant was unforgiving because he remained unforgiven. 
we have to go back to that first scene and see what's actually happening. An offer of forgiveness was made to this servant. But he remained unforgiven, and it's not because the king was stingy. The king offered him full pardon for his debt. But the servant would not stop talking long enough to hear that pardon. If you have your order of worship, look at what the servant says to the king. He lies to him to his face. Be patient with me, he says, and I will pay you back everything. It's not possible. And he's not listening to what the king is saying. And Maybe you've wandered into church this morning and you don't even know why because you've avoided church for most of your life because you know, you know that at some point the king is going to call your debt due. And you have a pit in your stomach as you wonder how great that debt actually is. Perhaps your anger or self-centeredness has torn apart your family. Maybe you've killed off relationships with your children or your siblings or your neighbors. Perhaps your business practices have made you rich at the expense of others. Perhaps you harbor bitterness in your heart and are unable to forgive others. And you sit here and you hope against hope that this is a trick story. That there's some sort of way out. But perhaps you sit here week after week and you're reminded of your debt every Sunday. And in response to it, you make promises to God and to yourself. And you come to this table and you eat this bread and you're saying to yourself, maybe this week is the week. Maybe this week I'll actually change. This week, I won't talk harshly to my kids or my spouse. This week, I won't lust. This week, I won't lie to my parents. This week, I'll finally be more forgiving of other people. And the more we talk, the more we reveal that we don't know the true problem, the true bulk of our debt. And hear me out, because I don't want to minimize the gravity of anger and lust and infidelity. These things are real and they are very destructive. But to be able to admit that the bare face of evil is ugly is not enough. And you know what? Mark Twain was right. A man cannot be comfortable without his own approval. So we keep talking. We keep making excuses. We keep making promises to be better. And sometimes we even do better Sometimes we accomplish good things, but more often than not, it is all an attempt to make ourselves feel more comfortable. And really, all we're doing is deceiving ourselves and attempting to manipulate the king. Can I be blunt with you this morning? Don't ask the king for patience. Don't tell him that you'll pay him back. I say this with love to each and every one of you, and I say it to my own heart. Shut up. 
Stop trying to find a way out. Stop making promises to reform just so you can squelch that feeling of guilt that you know is piling up. Be still. And listen to what the king has to say to you. He says this. I am not interested in promises you can't deliver on. It brings me no pleasure to watch you scrounge around, scraping a few pennies with which to repay me. I forgive you all of it. There is no amount of debt too great. And what would have taken you an eternity to repay? I have paid with the infinite value of my own life. That is what the king says to each and every one of you. Friends, the court date has been set. And at the end of all things, each and every one of us will stand before the king and our debt will be called due. And I'll end this morning with a question. On that day, as you face the overwhelming burden of your debt, what will your response be? Will it be, have more patience with me, and I'll pay you back everything? Or will you look at your king with a tear in your eye and a smile on your face and say, Jesus paid it all? Let's pray. Jesus, forgive us for talking over you, attempting to soothe our consciences with false promises. As we come to your table in a moment, would your voice break through our hearts of stone? And may we hear your offer of forgiveness and take it in faith. Amen.